You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we've got a great guest uh, who joined us to talk about lightning and some of the implications and some of his uh, career and research uh, developing really our knowledge base, really as uh, almost Alan as a species, uh, which is crazy to think. But um, Tom Warner uh, is one of the premier lightning researchers and knows more about it than anyone on the planet. Alan, tell us a little bit about Tom and his background and, and why this is such an important topic. Yeah, and there's a, there's, a, there's a select number of researchers around the world that have a really tight, intimate knowledge of what actually happens with, with lightning. And, and Tom is one of those people, but he has done it outside the academic realm for the most part. Uh, Tom is a pilot by training. He was in the Air Force. He flew uh, B-1 bombers. And at the same time, he developed a love of photography and, and watching lightning and taking pictures of lightning. He ended up in South Dakota for his Air Force career and stayed because he's originally from California, and he actually stayed in South Dakota. Not many people do that. Uh, and at, he really developed a lot of the techniques we use today on high-speed photography of lightning, but he was also a pilot, uh, weirdly enough, that he ended up flying in a T-28, basically a heavily armored 1950s vintage uh, airplane, radial engine airplane, that flew through severe thunderstorms where there's hail. It was, the aircraft was designed to take big hailstones and to record a lot of data around thunderstorms. And his aircraft was struck about once a year while they were doing that. So he's been really up close and personal to a lot of lightning and up, up, up in the air in particular, while his photography side grew too. So while he was taking pictures of lightning from the ground, uh, he had connected with some other lightning researchers and started to look at high-speed video. And he was one of the few people around that would post those high-speed videos online. He has a, a, a blog site, and he'd post those videos. And as an engineer, an outside engineer, we were, uh, all the engineers that were involved in Lightning were like, holy moly, look at this resource. Who is this Tom Warner guy? Because it provided us an insight into how Lightning moves and travels and, and uh, some of the physics that you can't see in a laboratory. And that's where Tom comes in is because it's that connection between what we know from old school data, laboratory, and what is actually happening. And, and Dan, he's a very unique person. Uh, it's a very unique set of skills that have come together with Tom. You know, it's one of those sort of like secondary disciplines that has a lot of carryover. Obviously, the more you understand the atmosphere that you're flying through, that's, a, that's an important piece of being a good pilot, I'm sure. So, you know, like you said, he has a really interesting background with flight, the atmospheric sciences, and uh, also the photography. All those things have blended together into helping him, like you said, capture a, a lot of the footage, the high-speed footage and photography that's helped really demystify and bring to life a lot of things that we thought might be happening or maybe we thought were happening and are, are not. So, you know, he discusses a number of myths and misconceptions about lightning, the way it forms, the way it travels, uh, different types of it that really just that are outdated and, and need to be um, rethought and, and the public needs to know that some of the things that we were taught in school 
really just uh, we've figured out and we can see it with our own eyes. Um, it's not that way. And it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's it's a nice sort of in-depth but not too deep discussion about what is actually happening in the clouds. Because we can't see it with our naked eye. And for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, we've always had these assumptions about what's happening in lightning in the clouds. And a lot of that is really not true scientifically. Yeah, so let's hear a little bit more from from Tom Warner uh, as he discusses some of his background with uh, the T-28 and how he got into uh, lightning research. It's called the T-28 Storm Penetrating Aircraft. And it was a 1949 T-28 Trojan, which was a trainer, a propeller, a big old radial engine trainer used for both the Air Force and the Navy. And back in the 70s, the Soviets were claiming that they could modify the weather. So um, there was an effort on the U.S. to try to create a, a platform that could fly through storms and clouds and measure in situ the microphysical things that are going on and to, to verify if it was possible to modify the weather. So in the 70s, they... Uh, Paul McCready uh, came up with a design for modifying an aircraft that could survive uh, a severe planes thunderstorm environment. And so they put armor plating on it. They put three-quarter inch uh, Lexan bulletproof uh, canopy modifications with metal reinforcement. And then they hung a whole, all these instrumentation instruments on the bottom of it so they could measure hydrometeors, which are particles, either water or ice, from the millimeter size up to six inch diameter hail. And so this this plane was one of a kind. It, it's not a hurricane hunter because the hurricane hunters, they go over hurricanes and they have four engines and, and but they don't get into the really heavy hail that we get into the in the severe plains thunderstorm. So so this thing was unique. It was uh, modified uh, heavily. It could uh, um, we also had a sniffer tube so we could measure oxides of nitrogen. It had electric field sensors so we could measure the electric field and all the thermodynamic parameters that you'd want to be able to measure. And so we flew th through thunderstorms uh, and got into hail uh, that made quite a racket. And we, we, <laughs> we would get struck by lightning typically once a season uh, as a single pilot. Uh, they took the back seat out and put the, the chemical sniffer in the back seat. So it was just, you're there by yourself. Uh, you do talk to a ground controller that's uh, looking at the radar, can see your position and, and is getting some telemeter data so they can tell if you're in hail or, or the environment that you're in, but they also keep you safe. They tell you where to go if there's a problem. And so it was, it was a, to me, a dream job as a, as a pilot, an atmospheric scientist, a lover of severe weather. You know, when the, when the chief pilot asked if I wanted to fly it, I said, absolutely. And I was the only person that applied. And the, there's actually two people that applied. And when the chief pilot called the other person and told him what he'd be doing, he withdrew his application. <laughs> so that was it. Uh, but yeah, we get struck by lightning. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the one uh, most uh, memorable lightning strike, it, it attached to the propeller and the tail, and there's always two attachment points because it actually initiates from the aircraft and, and propagates bidirectionally and bipolarly. And the lightning channel, one of the attachment points was on the propeller, and the sniffer tube that was measuring the oxides of nitrogen was on the top of the canopy, and it went right over the, the sniffer tube and got a great data set and it ended up in a, a, a publication. Uh, but when we land, we inspect the aircraft and there's little burn marks and weld marks that took a little of the, uh, the metal away from the propeller and the, and the tail. We 
file it out and then be ready to fly again. Every time you went through a thunderstorm, you knew that there was a chance that you can get struck. Um, but we, the aircraft was modified. It had a bonded um, bonding between the movable flaps and ailerons and all the movable parts had a bonding cable so that we all had an equal potential on the entire aircraft. A, a person would come out every year and charge up the aircraft on the ground and, and measure the, the static noise, the precipitation static that you referred to in some of your, your talks about how it's the, the antennas that are going into Corona and creating static noise over the radio. And we could hear that, but it was, it was minimized because they did a good, really good job of trying to minimize that, that precipitation static because we were in it so often. You could actually hear the precipitation static level increase and you knew you were getting closer and closer to being struck because that's it's a function of the electric field intensity and so there was a number of times where you'd hear that ramp up and usually the frequency would increase and it was like all right here it comes and sure enough bam or there'd be another flash nearby that would reduce the electric field and then it would drop off so you really had a sense of when it was could happen but you never knew on any particular pass you know if it was more of a chance or not, because we were just always in that environment where it could. There were a number of times uh, where, I mean, you, you'd be flying along and there'd be flash, flash, flash. You know, I mean, it was on an order of seconds uh, the, the, when you're, you're in the most intense part of the storm. So it's constantly flashing in the, when you get in that rough area. And uh, sometimes you didn't even know you got struck. It was a, such a bright flash, but you you couldn't see the channel or didn't know whether you got struck. But when you got down, you saw the burn marks. And, and uh, um, you know, it, it was all the time. And we were in, in the worst possible environment. We fly based on temperature. So we want to be in that minus 10 degrees Celsius where it's mixed phase, both super cooled liquid water, ice, hail. And so that is the absolute worst environment that an airplane wants to be. And that's also where a lot of the charging goes on and everything. So very high intense uh, electric fields and lots of lightning. And, you know, it could be constant. And that's also why we didn't fly at night because of the flash blindness. It would be just impossible to fly safely at night uh, because of the intense brightness. So, Alan, this T-28 aircraft sounds just like a, a bulldog just flying through, uh, getting hit with six-inch hail. You know, he's got some photos uh, on his website, ztresearch.blog, that shows some of the unprotected spots and just like, I mean, like look like they got hammered in with a baseball bat. And they did, because that's what it's like when you move in at speed and you hit large hailstones. It does a lot of damage. and that, that But that data is really important to, for us to understand how thunderstorms have evolved and, and what's going on in, inside of them, the way that they build charge, the way that lightning happens internally to them. There's a lot of a lot of things that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we didn't know about thunderstorms that we now take for granted, obviously. And Tom was one of those people that added to that that core knowledge of what's actually happening. It's, it's fascinating uh, looking back on it now because it seems so obvious today. It wasn't obvious then, that's for sure. And it, I think the lightning community owes Tom a, a, a debt of gratitude and all those lightning researchers that, that did some of the hard things and took the took the initiative to drive science forward. It's not an easy thing to do. I'm sure it was not inexpensive for Tom to do some of these things that he is put on, you know, having a website, having high-speed cameras. Those are not cheap. Very not cheap. 
hundred thousand dollars, not cheap. Yeah, I'm not sure how he convinced his family to do that, but more power to him. That adds to our general understanding. And sometimes I always feel like it, the more open source information is, science is, the faster we can grow. And and Tom was a very key part in the Lightning community for sure. It still is, by the way. Yeah, well, and he, we were fortunate enough to get a sort of Lightning primer from him. Uh, so let's jump back into into his explanation of really how Lightning works and some of the misconceptions that it's been his goal to debunk. The most fundamental thing you, you have to think about is how, how does the whole process start? And it starts with the electrification of a storm. And, and the way a storm electrifies is that you have ice particles, uh, what we call grapple, which is small hail, soft hail, and then you have ice crystals. And these particles can collide and when they do, in the presence of supercooled liquid water, so we have to be in a temperature where it's below freezing, there's these droplets of water that are not frozen, even though it's colder than freezing. And that's, that creates a rhyming scenario to where if any of those water droplets touch an ice particle, they'll freeze instantly and create rhyme ice. So there's a process that takes place that when these ice crystals collide with a grapple, piece of grapple, electrons are transferred to the grapple and the grapple takes on a negative charge. The, the, the lighter, smaller ice particle tends then to take on a positive charge due to the deficit of electrons. And in the updraft, then that separates it because it's a lighter ice particle. So the ice particles collect in the upper part of the storm. The negatively charged grapple collects in the lower part of the storm because of the larger size. And so a typical arrangement of charge in a thunderstorm is an upper positive charge region and a lower negative charge region. And then for what we see over time is that another lower positive charge region forms, and this is due to induction and, and, and a few other processes. So it's really a tripole type structure is your typical. Now, it's much more complex than that, but that's the basic. So what is lightning? Well, lightning is the development of a charged plasma channel. This is essentially, it's a, it's a hot, uh, visually bright plasma channel where the neutral air of oxygen and, and nitrogen breaks down. And, and when we say break down, what that means is it ionizes. So the, the air molecules have an electron ripoff, and then you're left with a, a positive uh, ion. And and the reason that happens is that you have these charge regions and there's an electric field between those two charge regions. And it gets so strong that you can get ionization of molecules, the neutral air, and that causes separation. So you can think of it almost like a metal rod in the sense that it's conductive. It's 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 got a plasma charge can move. It's it's very conductive and it develops in a bidirectional bipolar fashion. And so. Think of it as just the air is breaking down under the intense force of the electric field. The actual mechanism that starts that initial breakdown is still being researched. It's not fully understood. We don't know if it's a cosmic uh, ray that comes in and knocks off that first electron. And then now that electron on the force of the electric field accelerates and, and causes a, an avalanche of, of collisions and other ionization. Well, we don't know if it's an enhancement of, of all these hydrometeors that enhance the field locally that create the condition for the initial ionization, but we're getting closer. But it's one of those fundamental questions that are still not fully understood. So lightning is simply the development of a leader of, of 
a plasma leader that's conductive, it's hot, and it's uh, it grows in a bidirectional bipolar region. So you have to have two charge regions for this to grow in between. So that's how a lightning flash. And it's only leaders. Leaders can propagate, and they'll continue to propagate based on the difference in the uh, potential or the charge on the tip of the leader and the charge region that's in the storm. So if you think of the, the negative end of a, of a lightning leader, it's got a, a surplus of electrons. So it's, it's attracted towards the positive charge region. We have negative and positive, so it's attracted to each other. And the negative end of the leader, which has a surplus of electrons, goes towards the positive end. The positive end of the leader, which has a deficit of electrons, goes towards the negative charge region that has a surplus of electrons. And so it's this difference in, in charge that drives the leader. And it causes further ionization on the tips, and that's how it grows. So it's ionization on the tips of the leaders that cause it to grow. As long as there's a difference in the charge between the tip of the leader and the cloud charge, it'll propagate. Once that difference decays, the leader just stops, it, and then it cools down, it, the light goes away, and, the, and those ions and electrons start recombining, and you're left with the neutral. But overall, what you've done if you have these two charge regions and you have a lightning flash in between it, it shifts charge towards one direction. So in other words, the positive charge region, you'll get a shift of electrons. And in essence, you've reduced the, the, the charge because of that shift. And that's what it, that's what's going on. So unfortunately, for many years, it was taught that, you know, this charge in a cloud is like a, a water balloon. And, and, and it can flow and you poke a hole in it and, and negative charge comes to the ground and strikes the ground. And that's not true. It's, it's, it can't move like that. It's on these little ice particles and it can't flow on its own. And, and you know, you could, you hear the analogy of a doorknob. Well, there's the, the charge in the cloud is not a doorknob. Uh, <laughs> it would be really bad if it was because planes wouldn't be able to fly through and they'd hit it. But but all these all these little ice particles are like doorknobs and they got charge on it and they they can uh, flow if they touch something but they can't move rapidly on their own so that's that's a myth or a, a, a description that's outdated in the case of lightning you either it stays in the cloud and it moves bidirectionally and stops that's a cloud flash but you could have one end of the leader come to the ground and there's charge induced on the ground that the earth is a fairly good uh, capacitor or, or um, conductor in the sense that it can allow charge to move very freely along the surface. So if you have a, a negative end of a leader go outside the cloud and start coming towards the ground, there's going to be positive charge induced on the ground. And so it's going to be attracted to the ground. So that one end of the leader can go and make a connection with the ground. And when that happens, it causes what we refer to as a return stroke. Because suddenly you have this charged leader that's that's under a certain level of resistance, touch a conductor that has very low resistance, and the electrons rapidly accelerate downward, and that causes increased kinetic energy, thermalization, and you get this bright, hot return stroke that cascades back up the channel in kind of a wave and a wave front due to the sudden increase in or decrease in, in resistance. And that's the return stroke. And then that's what we see is a really bright event that, that strikes the ground. But we can still see the leaders as they propagate through the cloud because we see cloud flashes. We see the leaders. So we're, we're always seeing lightning, whether it touches the ground or not. 
we can see it. You know, I was taught as a kid and, and most people I come across is like, well, I was taught, you know, lightning always goes up. And it's true that the return stroke that I referred to goes up. It goes from the ground up because of that resistance decrease. But lightning, like I said earlier, is a bi-directional bipolar process and it can move and initiates up in the cloud, except for upper lightning, which we'll talk about later. Um, it propagates bi-directionally and actually comes down to the ground to create a, a, a cloud to ground lightning flash. So it actually moves downward. It actually moves in both directions, both upward and downward, because there's part of it that you got to think of lightning in terms of it's both its ends. We're just seeing the, the, the lower end come below the cloud and, and come to the ground. There's an upper portion that's growing upward into the like the positive charge region. The negative end will go up in the positive charge region, and then you could have the positive end come down, and vice versa, depending on the charge arrangement. So there's always two ends of a lightning. And then when it touches the ground, after it attaches the ground, causes the return stroke, it can continue to grow as an attached channel further up into the storm. And, and that's what we see is happening. And that's essentially what upward lightning is like. So the, the process is straightforward in that regard. But really, lightning comes down from the ground, causes a return stroke, which goes back up the channel. And that's where we were taught lightning always goes up because they were referring only to the return stroke, but that's not really true. It actually comes down. So Alan, obviously you've been in lightning protection for a long time and you know, you've worked as an engineer on myriad issues uh, for aircraft. How has your knowledge of lightning evolved over time and ha you know, what brought it to sort of like this modern interpretation uh, that Tom has just uh, sort of explained to everyone. Yeah, it, it's become uh, more of the way lightning interacts with aircraft. Is It used to be we thought that lightning was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that has completely flipped over. Now we, we feel like 90% of the lightning strikes to aircraft are aircraft-initiated, that there's leaders forming on opposite sides of the airplane, a positive first, a negative second. They start, so it's a bi-directional lightning leader, and the airplane is just in the middle of that mess. Um, and that's what Tom is talking about. Like lightning starts as a bidirectional thing in clear air. The airplane helps it, helps that breakdown. Uh, but I think the consensus is most lightning strikes happen because of the airplane in in the middle of the storm. That That is a different way of looking of lightning, and it's a different philosophy. And now that we know we're sitting up, atmospheric charge up into the upper atmosphere that's that's part of tom's research too because he was in the midwest you could see these discharges happening up to the ap upper atmosphere it's a global circuit i think we look at the earth now as a global circuit and the airplane just happens to be in the middle of it so it does make a difference when we design airplanes on what we do and what kind of things we're going to see on on airplanes and how we protect airplanes and a lot of that research and that knowledge will comes from people like Tom who actually have flown airplanes into lightning strikes as from a research standpoint and, and NASA and a lot of the other researchers around the world. There's a lot of research happening in France too uh, that congeal our, our thoughts about it. Cause if it was just one person, it's hard to buy into that as a consensus, right? But everybody has to add their contribute their blocks to this greater building. Tom is one of those key blocks because he's able to provide us data and that we can all just go online and check out. It's really cool. Yeah. So we want to thank again our guest today, Tom Warner. You can follow up with him 
through his website, which we'll link to in the show notes or description of this podcast, no matter where you're listening. And again, that's ztresearch.blog. But again, we'll link to that below. Yeah, really, really in-depth conversation from obviously one of the premier lightning experts and someone who's really changed uh, the way we protect our aircraft and the people that we love inside them. So we really appreciate Tom coming on the show with us today. And we'll see you here next week on the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.